You're listening to Rosie on the House. Come on around back, but hold up. Hold up. Hold up. Don't get in Randy's blind spot. He don't want to run you over anymore. You want to be run over. <laughs> get some sand and dirt dropped off today for the horse arena. We've been waiting for this rain. I can't tell you, Jay, for how long. So the next big rain, we're finally going to... Our horse stalls, they have been standing in the same spot for about five years so when it rains you know oh, all the i mean it's just sitting water <laughs> yeah. and you know you got the it, it turns to black water because yeah, yeah. so we we've been waiting for this rain oh it is so nice to finally be getting something done because it's it's been a long time well depending on where you live you know i mean some places in town have gotten shellacked uh, other places, you know, typical monsoon. It's spotty all over. I, there was a pretty good shower going on. looked like about Levine this morning when I was coming in. So l- pretty good little thunder boomers this morning about 4.30, quarter to 5, I guess, something like that going on somewhere. So The, the shade of green, everything starts to turn almost instantly. Is. Yeah, it doesn't take long. <laughs> doesn't take long. You go down southern Arizona from about Picacho Peak down, and then south of Tucson around Sonoida and Elgin. It's it's really getting green down there. They've had lots of rain. So, so what do we do with good. it all? I mean, the everything just seems so relieved, and the plants, trees, lawns. Uh, do you just leave it alone? Do you fertilize now? Is it a good time to pre-emerge? All of that. I mean, you know, definitely a good time to get some fertilizer down, especially on warm season grasses and turf grasses and things like that, and let let Mother Nature do its thing and water it in, hopefully. Um, you know, we're kind of on that in-between time about feeding trees and shrubs and and citrus, but, you know, the citrus will, with this humidity, will start pushing lots of new growth. Um, it wouldn't be a bad time to get some good slow-release organic uh, fertilizer on any of that stuff not not push it real hard but kind of give it some some good slow release nutrition um, uh, you know and pre-emergent you know it's 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 always a good time to, to apply pre-emergent you know in your gravel areas I would be a little careful this late now applying pre-emergent to a lawn that you might want to overseed this fall with uh, with winter ryegrass uh, but you're certainly your gravel areas, granite areas, if you missed, you know, March, April, get it on there because it doesn't take long. Like I say, you know, you know, when it's 90 to 110 degrees and you get moisture on the ground, stuff grows really fast. Um, so you're all of your gravelly areas that you don't want any weeds or anything to come up. Pre-emergent starts working pretty much the minute it gets watered into the soil and lasts for you know, three or four months, depending on your rate of application. So good time to do that. Great time to fertilize. You know, still, uh, you know, a little bit of vegetable gardening going on. Not much, but we're in that transition time where it won't be long. You know, we're over halfway through July. Come August, we start thinking about things like beans and corn and, you know, getting ground ready because September is all of our leafy greens we start, uh, you know, the all the farmers and Yuma and different places are starting to prep for all those early. You know, they do it a little earlier than we do, but 
getting ready for fall planting. So it's not, it doesn't feel much like it out there, but it's, uh, it's right around the corner. One triple eight seven six seven four three four eight. That's one triple eight Rosie for you. If you'd like to talk to Mr. John J. Harper of the Farms Choice All Natural Product for Organic Fertilizing and Fourth Generation Gardener, Master Gardener. Technically not. I mean, uh, not a master. Master Gardener is somebody that's gone through the 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 cooperative extension classes, which which I haven't done, but uh, you know, certainly uh, practical experience from being in the nursery business for. 40 some years so yeah i think i'm qualified maybe maybe. somebody will stump me though today watch (laughs) and it's always uh when you say well you know avocados don't do well here and you get somebody well i've got an avocado tree that (laughs) i i learned a long time ago not to ever tell somebody you couldn't grow something here because somebody will have done it there are Tropical fruits being grown here, avocados, mangoes, papayas, different things, and and can be done if you have the right circumstances. But the other thing I tell and people— time. Yeah, and time. Yeah, so, you know, if gardening is truly a hobby and a passion for you, then you should tr- you should try that stuff. I mean, you should try growing some of that stuff. It, it, you can get it to work if you've got the right spot. Um, but the other thing I tell folks is if you don't and you're not into that, if— don't do it because if they did really well here, you'd have you'd there'd be avocado trees in every yard. I mean, who wouldn't have one? <laughs> I'd have six. <laughs> so yeah. So um, you know, a good indication of what does very well here is just to drive around and look around and see what you see lots of, and and those are kind of the surefire deals. But you can certainly grow a lot of interesting and cool stuff here if you've got the right microclimate, the right setup. You know, flood irrigation particularly, uh, and if you're in an area that's maybe not quite as cold, um, then then that would be a great place to try it. And there, there's a, a number of pretty good nurseries that specialize in those rare and tropical fruits uh, going on now. So, um, you know, if you want to monkey around with it, you know, it's not like it's the most expensive thing in the world to go try and, and have fail. It's not like golf. I mean, you can... <laughs> You can spend thousands of dollars on equipment and go out there and fail miserably at it, right? You know, you can you can buy a lot of cool plants for a couple hundred bucks, and, you know, if half of them don't work, you're not really out that much. So, <laughs> And the big guys see the opportunity in it, too. Dave Wilson's Nursery, uh, a big propagator and grower, has been trying to get something that uh, avocado-wise that would do better in the desert because of the— the number of requests they see the money potential well, they can make well that and 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 that's where our our future growth in our agricultural production areas are in the warmer areas of the united states so all of our uh, horticulture and agriculture not all of it but a great deal of our research is going into trying to develop varieties of all kinds of things that will do better in warmer drier climates thrive with less water uh, those types of things. So that's, you know, that's a great conservation tool for water. If we're going to expand agriculture into areas that don't have a lot of water, we need to have varieties that will do well with less water. So um, there's been there's been a lot of things done, and I know they are working on a, on a heat-tolerant avocado, and they'll probably come up with something. Did you, or for anyone that wasn't with us in the 7 o'clock hour, Rosie had an article, I 
don't know the columnist, but he was proposing sucking water out of the Snake River to fill meat up. Hmm. Okay. Well, we we you know we <laughs> we pipe oil and natural gas. That's what a he was heck saying. Heck of a lot longer distances than we would have to pipe water from certain places to to recharge some of our reservoirs and lakes out of places that have sometimes too much. I mean, look at how many times the Mississippi River floods its banks. Man, if we could figure out a way to to pump that water over here, that would be something. Yeah, but you know what they say about the Mississippi River. Uh, well, no, you tell me. By the time it hits New Orleans, yeah. it's cycled through a person or a cow 18 <laughs> times. 18? 18. That's why they don't drink I, much water in New Orleans. <laughs> <laughs> I got news for you. Yeah, that's, well. that's a water source for. Yeah. Well, we could make it 19. Ship it over here to <laughs> ship it over here to to uh, Lake Powell or to the CAP, and we'll uh, you know or to the Gila. Better yet, dump it into the Gila and let it fill San poor old San Carlos up. Well, this guest columnist was talking about an eight foot pipeline from the Snake River to Lake Mead. Now, I've heard about a pipeline they have proposed from Puerto Penasco. That's 170 miles. Snake River's 900 miles. I'd still rather the Snake River water, I think. Yeah, what kind of water would we get from Puerto Penasco? Salty. Salt water. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess desal- you know, desalinization is pretty expensive and takes a lot of electricity, too. That's the... The flip side of that, so that, that, that might not be the best plan. I heard uh, there was a guy one time proposing we tow icebergs <laughs> to play. Well, <laughs> so, they're, they're so, breaking you know. off at a rate like crazy because of uh, global warming. So where do we tow? Do we airlift it to Lake Pleasant or drop uh, it in Lake Mead? What do we do? Maybe you tow it off the coast and suck it into the. <laughs> I don't know. You know. You need old crazier world. things have been done. Yes, yeah, probably. you know, drilling holes through mountains to run a railroad through it, and all those kind of things. You know, it's uh, it's certainly not out of the question. You need one of those old world skills where they used to carve the ice and carry it by, you know, horse drawn carts and sell it in the cities. Like, how did they keep that from not melting? And a time when electricity wasn't even. <laughs> My, my dad, my dad talks about the ice wagon going down the street, and you know that had been in the '40s, you know, late '30s, early '40s in Phoenix. That the, you know, people got ice delivered to their ice boxes, and uh, guy'd chip off a big chunk and take it, take it to the house and drop it off in their ice box for him. And they, the kids would kind of go behind because when you, I'm sure when he's chipping it, you get a little shavings. Fall off, and it, probably in the summer that was pretty good stuff, you know. We're in the outdoor living hour, believe it or not. We've kind of gone on a few little bunny trails around, but it's all around the water, which is pretty critical in our outdoor living spaces. If you've got a question about your lawns, your trees, your gardens, one triple eight seven six seven four three four eight. You can text questions to four one one nine two three or email. To info at rosieonthehouse.com if you need a little help with plant or insect identification. You can send an image to us that way. How high is the water, mama? Two feet high and rise. How high is the water, papa? She said it's two feet high There's and rise. But we can make it to the road in a homemade boat because that's yeah, the only thing it. we got left that'll <laughs> float. It's already over all the wheat notes. Two feet high and rising. Gotta go somewhere. 
Yeah. Pump it here. We'll take it. We'll take it. And then if what's left over, just run on down to Mexico, and they need it too. So, Or down go. into the water table. Yeah. Absolutely. So what, uh, as much as we like to say, you know, we've got rain, and yes, obviously the plants look better, but we it's not like we can just turn off our irrigations right now. <laughs> well, you can for short spurts. I mean, the other day, uh, was it a week or two weeks ago? Anyway, in, in my neighborhood, we had almost two inches of rain over a two-day period. And, you know, I turned the lawn off um, and the garden and stuff, you know, for the rest of the week. So for, it went about another, I got a week out of it um, that I didn't have to water. So, yeah, you can't. And, and with the humidity up, um, you know, plants are not transpiring as much moisture as quickly. You could realistically probably tweak your irrigation systems. Now, if you were watering your lawn four days a week, you could probably go to three. Now, the days are shorter, too. Do you notice how much darker it is? This? I mean, of course, we had cloud cover, but um, it's getting to the point where the days start shortening, the humidity goes up. Um it's going to the plants will use slightly less water and then if in specific areas if you have the ability after a heavy rain you know an inch or two of rain you can turn your particularly lawns and things like that off you know for a pretty good amount of time a week or so that saves a significant if everybody would do that think about the numbers that the critical mass if everybody did that that's about paying attention and jay you you always had a trick that always really stuck with me and that was the indicator plant yeah so pick a pick a plant in your garden that kind of is the most water needy or or expresses itself by wilting more drastically than others and there, there's a number of examples in my yard it's cape honeysuckle uh, or pink trumpet vine and so when those get a little on the wilty side i know in fact i looked out this morning and wondered why they were wilting because they should have just watered and you know it's not all that terribly hot and with kind of cloudy and rainy this morning I looked out and the doggone thing is wilting and you know something got goofed up in the water schedule and so I went over and and turned it on manually but the other thing is is you you'll notice that those those periods of time now will start stretching out um, so yeah it's a it's a good little trick um, to have is to have a plant or two in your landscape that you look at and go, hmm, that's looking a little needy. And, and you know, that, of course, the other plants could go longer, but you kind of have to water on, you know, the, you know, the least common denominator. Another fun thing to do, though, is to have other indicator plants, like our Texas sage. Have you noticed how we've got a little moisture and boom, they are blooming like crazy. Uh, so they're they're kind of a cool indicator plant on a positive side that lets us know that the the environment is has a lot more moisture in it, and it's it's a short lived because in the when the landscape maintenance guys come around they take the <laughs> well, hedges yeah. and go, <laughs> oh no god darn it yeah if we can keep if we can keep the gas powered hedge trimmers out of everybody's hands here for the next month or two we'd be a lot prettier around. That is a pretty sure. purple color. Yeah. There's well, there are different shades of them, different varieties that bloom different colors. It's it's very dramatic. We were on a residence not far from here earlier this week working on a on a project, and they had planted desert willow, and 
that that's a I, I need one of those. <laughs> that and this would be perfect for entry by the front driveway coming in. That that's a really pretty bloom. It is a pretty bloom, a very hardy tree. Gets gets reasonably good sized and there's some great new varieties of desert willows that are seedless. Uh, the, the knock on desert willow is always, you know, it loses its deciduous, so it loses its leaves in the winter. And it's not the prettiest thing in the world when it had, especially if it's got seed pods hanging all over it and it's kind of twiggy looking. But some of the new varieties are, are pretty neat. We talked about the purple blooming one last week, Romy. What was that, the monk? The vitex. Mon- monk's pepper. Monk's pepper. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't not see them anymore. They're, and they're just crazy in bloom right now. It seemed, and did I hear, Jay, that sometimes in drought that'll force more blooms? Because I've never seen anything like them. Well, you know, one thing that will happen, and people, you know, they'll call in and or they'll talk about their citrus tree blooming at an odd time of the year or something blooming. And it's a survival mechanism, and it's also a tool or a technique that farmers will use. They'll stress a plant for water, and it will naturally want to go to flower because it thinks it's dying. So, you know, it's natural def- defense, not defense mechanism, but it's plan for procreation is to flower and set another set of fruit so to drop some seed if it thinks it's going to die. So one of the things that, that they do do to stimulate blossoms is to bloom. And it's another thing, if your plants are not blooming like they should be, you might be overwatering. That's the one, one way to, one thing to check. If, especially bougainvilleas, we see that a lot. People complain that they're not coloring up the way they should. And, and one of the reasons for that is they're just getting too much water. They're growing too much. They need to slow down and, and, uh, and, and start blooming. Which is funny because that is so counter to what you think naturally. Oh, if, it's always, if it's getting bloomed now, add some more water and it's, it's going to bloom. Always somewhere. everybody's <laughs> reaction. 99.9% of the time, if something's wrong with the plant, water it more. <laughs> Give it more water. <laughs> Give it more water. When that might, in fact, be the actual problem is it's getting too much. One triple eight seven six seven four three four eight. That's one triple eight Rosie for you on this July. What is today? Is it fourteenth, twenty first? That was last week. You're a week behind. One triple eight seven six seven four three four eight. That's one triple eight Rosie for you as we bring Brian into the conversation. Welcome to the broadcast. You're live on the air with Mr. John J. Harper. All right, thanks. Um, my mom and dad have a cabin up in Overgard, and they passed away last year. So now I've acquired the um, the, the chores up there at the house. We have some trees, pine trees up there that have been infected by the the bark beetle, and are now all brown needles and things like that. we got about four or five of those, I think. Uh, so there's a couple things I'm going to find out is, one is, how do you properly get rid of those dead trees without spreading those beetles onto any other trees? And then, two, how do, how do we protect the, one, the trees that are still alive and kicking up there that haven't been infected or maybe be partially infected at this point? 
Okay. Well, a number of things. Number one, the bark beetles are there and and are always there. It's in periods of drought that their damage becomes manifested and, and is stressful and eventually can kill the trees. When the trees are getting plenty of moisture <clears throat> and they're growing and the sap is is flowing actively, it, it t- fends off, in other words, the the damage being done or doesn't allow the damage to be done by the bark beetles that are living in the tree. So the sap kind of kind of keeps them at bay, plugs them up, you know, that sort of thing. Doesn't allow them to to do any damage or mitigates the damage that they can do. When we have periods of extended drought, particularly dry winters, that's when uh, you know, you start seeing the damage being done uh, because the tree cannot battle the bark beetles by itself. So once a tree is is severely impacted, then destroying the tree, to my understanding, is really your only option. And and you see a number of things being done. When when they were really really bad, you know, uh, what in early two thousands probably, right? Um, you would see a lot of them get cut up, and they would pile them, and then they would cover those piles in in black plastic or plastic, and kind of solarize, and and you know the heat buildup would kill then any bark beetle or larva that were living in those in those trees. Um, the other thing would be to just cut them up and haul them to a to a burn. Uh, you know, or some of the areas in the mountain communities have uh, places that are set up to take green waste like trees and they burn them. Um, that's that's another option. There are some okay. great resources on bark beetles that, uh, you know, the uh, forest office in uh, Heber Overgard uh, could probably give you some great resources and even walk you through some of the techniques uh there are some uh, uh, forestry uh, employees in the Flagstaff area that I, I understand give a great presentation on that. You might see if there's any of those going on. Uh, even the even the local nurseries, probably in Star Valley, uh, uh, Plant Fair Nursery, and in the Pine Top Lakeside area, Christopher's Gardens could probably direct you some to some resources from the, maybe the county extension different folks. I mean, this has been going on long enough now, and there's been enough damage that, that there's some people that have lots of good information on bark beetles. So I and would probably take advantage of that. Brian, we'll send you a link to a podcast a couple years ago when we were broadcasting in Flagstaff for the home show they have there at the Superdome, Skydome. 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 Mm-hmm. <laughs> Superdome's different part of the country. We had uh, Mick Henry from Mixed Tree Service on. And we did nothing but talk about bark beetles for an hour. And it's like an, an encyclopedia. And they were, it was incredible. I mean, we were talking about reproduction rate, how far they could fly to the next tree, the the communication methods that they use to bring their, mm-hmm. I, I don't know, I don't remember if it's called a swarm of bark beetles or a flock of bark beetles <laughs> or a... <laughs> Whatever, but it it was extremely fascinating and just the education on how they work and live. Because like Jay said, they're always there, drought or no drought. Uh, so you you've got you've got them constantly. It's just what do you how do you manage to keep them away? Or you're not going to keep them away, invasion. but reduce yeah. the impact of them. You That's know. what I was. Wondering. Yeah, and there's some other folks that have told me they've you know they've taken select trees 
in their yard of their cabins and, and actually watered them enough to give them enough moisture when they're not getting enough rainfall. If you have water available, some cabin, you know, and, and uh, subdivisions don't have the water to do that. But uh, if that's an option, that certainly would help, I would think. One triple eight seven six seven four three four eight. That's one triple eight Rosie for you as we move through our callers online. Uh, Diane is next. Wants to talk about a Texas ebony. Good morning and welcome to the broadcast. Good morning. Um, I've been listening to you for years, and I am so glad that you're able to take my question about my Texas ebony. It's about um, thirty feet high. It's growing beautifully and flowering continually. I have developed allergies, and my dog has developed allergies to the little flowers. So we had the tree treated by, can I talk about the company or not? Well, well, we had the tree sprayed when it was in full bloom, and um, that seemed to take away the pods with that first bloom. Then it bloomed a second time, and we had the tree treated this time on its trunk, and then it's blooming again, and I'm trying to prevent the seed pods, which are a nuisance, and the flowers. I have a new dog who has also been, is allergic to the little flowers and chews on the little acorny things that come out of the um, seed pods. So you're trying to prevent the tree from even blooming, which the only way to do that in my uh, as far as I know, would be to actually use a growth retardant or a growth inhibitor as opposed to something like, uh, you know, an olive stop or a product that actually kind of shortens the length of the bloom or keeps the bloom from pollinating um, and setting the fruit. So if you're going to, if you were trying to eliminate pollen, you need to eliminate the flower. To, to eliminate the flower, you've got to interrupt the growth cycle of the plant and actually keep it from flowering. You can do that with, you know, you'd have to have a professional do it, but you'd have to have some type of growth regulator or growth retardant put on the tree, and you've got to time it right so that it has enough time to work and keep that tree. The problem with that is it also keeps the tree from growing, and you can run into some problems with extended use of those uh, types of chemicals and what they might do to the tree. I have to empathize with her a little bit. You were talking about the bougainvillea. Something about the rain pattern in the last 12 to 18 months triggered the Texas ebony. I mean, the Texas ebony's in our front yard literally carpeted the entire front yard three separate times in the, in the last two months. Interesting. I mean, I mean, a carpet of pollen two and three inches deep. They just went nuts. And beans, pods, by the millions. Well, it could be something to do. It could be a defense mechanism or a survival mechanism with the droughty conditions, possibly, that's going on. I've, I've never lived through what they did to us this year. It was, it was, it was, it was unbelievable. <laughs> there, you're under attack God, me. from the Texas Ebony's. <laughs> and I don't know if it applies to Texas Ebony's, but I know when Eisenhower will do an olive tree, he won't just go spray it. He, To do it right, he goes and trims it ahead of time because it's impossible to get as much coverage on it to prevent well, the entire olive stop. Well, plus you eliminate a certain amount of wood that's going to produce flowers by doing that. So all of that certainly helps. So, yeah, maybe even trimming 
uh, the ebony at certain times and timing it. It would probably be a good idea to have somebody like John Eisenhower come out, discuss the situation with him, and, and see if there's a, a you know some type of methodology they can use to help you eliminate or at least slow it down a little bit. And maybe this year was just an anomaly, and it's just not going to be that bad. But. Well, before we take our next call, I'm going to run through a few texts here that have come in. One, just a note, uh, they said they used to keep ice with uh, sawdust is how they kept the ice from melting back in the day. So. Okay. So somebody out there listening insulator, knows. <laughs> insulator of some kind, sure. Uh, Fig Tree and Casa Grande was wondering when to expect fruit. My Mine's in full bloom. Well, we can't eat it fast enough i was gonna say it's if it doesn't have fruit on it right now you're not gonna have any that right <laughs> Next right year. now is when it's when it should be being harvested and and uh and full of figs mid midsummer that is one of my like indicator plants oh yeah they'll look they'll get wilty looking yeah i mean in the orchard if the figs and if you got extra figs Call me. I'll come out. We'll, okay. We'll take care of that. <laughs> I'll take some off your hands, too. <laughs> well, right, you two are right behind me. <laughs> uh, birded Paradise. Is it a good time to trim, if not when? If we're talking to the, the desert varieties or arid varieties, no. There should be in full bloom right now looking beautiful. You want to prune those in the wintertime, you know, January. All right. This is a long one. Our 12-year-old ornamental plum tree has died. We are slowly cutting away the branches, and we get down to the trunk. I've heard you talk about drilling holes in the trunk and pouring herbicide uh, into the holes before removing the stump. Can you repeat that method, and was it herbicide or gasoline? <laughs> well, definitely not gasoline. <laughs> Um, I don't know that that was ever well, said I guess on this the, program. Yeah, <laughs> I guess the, the uh, question would be it. Are you going to want to replant in exactly that spot? Um, because certainly you wouldn't want to use gasoline if that were going to be the case. And number two, if if you don't need to exact plant in that exact same spot, you don't really have to worry about getting rid of the stump. If the tree is dead, it's probably not going to resprout. So you could just cut it off flush with the ground. You would never see the stump. And generally, you can move a foot or two away on a tree like that that's not super huge and get another hole dug and replant a tree in in the same general vicinity. So I, I don't think the method that we're talking about of killing a stump is usually used on when we cut a tree down that's alive. Especially okay, and we want to keep it from re-sprouting. Um, then we, we want to use something to keep to kill that tree from the stump down. In the case of a tree that's already dead, that really shouldn't be an issue. That's a dangerous one. What, a peaceful, easy feeling? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Not the feeling. The oh. just it, It's one I enjoy. I don't want to interrupt it. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've got the farm's choice. I was sitting here reading uh, your little pamphlet here on the, uh, the fascination of the deposit of a chicken. <laughs> that's, that's, some, that's like a miracle poop. <laughs> that's right. 
Well, you know, chickens, you know, everybody know, you know, they lay lots of eggs, but they also poop a lot. And, uh, you know, so we don't, we don't let that go to waste. We process that into, you know, some really good, valuable organic fertilizer that, that is used by lots of farms and golf courses and homeowners all over the Southwest. And the packaging and uh, processing has enhanced it. You could, you could always tell a nursery that carried it just by leaving your window rolled down when you drove by. <laughs> well, there is that. It's, it does have, you know, it does have an odor. It, but it's been greatly reduced as the drying process has changed, and uh, the packaging that uh, pallet you gave one to me in a plastic box. That yeah, was, the resealable tubs. If for homeowners that. Yeah, you want to stick it in your garage, and, and even for garden centers that want to display inside their buildings, we do have a 15-pound tub of pellets that is totally resealable. Plus, the, the the little tubs are really cool for later on storing all kinds of stuff because they seal up good, they're waterproof, and they're really awesome. So, And I know you're working on a soluble, like, uh, injection. We have a liquid. Um, we're not working on it. We have it. Um, we're, we're selling quite a bit of that to uh, golf courses and farms at the moment. We don't have a retail package yet, uh, but uh, that's coming. But, uh, yeah, that market is, is expanding, and there's lots of guys because of uh, for a number of reasons, but one of them is, you know, uh, labor savings, and, and it's a very affordable product and uh, very effective. So, And that's another byproduct that was just kind of going to waste, and we figured out a way to capture that and create a liquid. So the uh, Hickman families, man, they're out, they're like the pioneers of recycling. They, they recycle. There's everything you can imagine. We use recyclable uh, cartons for the eggs now out of plastic pot bottles and make egg cartons out of them. So it's just pretty amazing what, uh, what does not go to waste. And when you can company. find something that has been uh, cultivated locally, you know, that, that's just... The, the more we can stick local, we've. The, well, there's lots it, of advantages just, to that. The obviously. snowball effect yeah. Is, yeah. is hard to measure. Yeah. Plus, generally, it drives costs down. So, unless it has to be handled and transported and keep the jobs here and all of that's a great idea. We're uh, we're going to try and sneak in one last one. We had talked a little bit in the last break. The texter wanted to talk about, uh, you know, killing the dead stump and, well, the tree's already dead. Well, Somebody heard that, and they're dealing with sisu shoots. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so, good morning. Hello. Yes, sir. You're on? I got, I got a uh, sisu tree that I cut down about six months ago, and the shoots will not stop coming out of the ground. I was wondering what I can put in there to get them out of it. Well, the only thing that I know to tell you now um, this far down the road is to when you see shoots coming up, treat the individual shoots with concentrate, fully undiluted uh, glyphosate, which is the active ingredient in Roundup, uh, high yield kills all, a number of different uh, manufacturers make it. But glyphosate, undiluted, and you get a little paintbrush or, a, or a, a sponge and just dab it on those shoots as they come up, and it'll just it's just going to take a lot of time now. Those will have to, that chemical will have to get translocated back into the root. And eventually, you know, we can we can outlast it and wear it down to where it's not producing any more shoots. But the best thing to do when, if 
The best thing to do is not cut a sisu down. <laughs> if That's you have one, when the leave starts. it alone. <laughs> once, once you cut them down, they just... We talked about defense mechanisms. I, I don't know if that's what it is or not, but they just go nuts putting shoots up. So the minute you cut it off, you need to treat that freshly cut stump with something like full-strength undiluted glyphosate. Pour it right in that stump. Drill some holes. You know, Make some hash marks with something to increase the absorbency and get it on there. Yeah, a lot of the tree service guys have some other stuff they add to it. You could contact, you know, John Eisenhower or different people and see if they've got a little recipe. But um, And a lot of times in those cases, you need a chemical applicator license. Well, it's not if, something if, that's if, over the Some counter. of that stuff you can't buy. That's correct. Roundup or glyphosate, you can. Full strength, undiluted. Give that a try. But don't, spray, don't get it on anything you don't want to kill and be very careful with it. But... Uh, the best thing to do is just, like I said, a little paintbrush or a little, you know, get a sponge, tape it to the end of a long stick. If you don't want to be stooping down, dip it and wipe it on there and go to the next one. And when you're talking, you're talking about like when you buy it in a bottle and it says this will, you know, mix this with five. Yeah, do not mix. One tablespoon with five <laughs> gallons. Just dip a paintbrush right out of there and paint it on that shoot. Correct. Well, we appreciate it. Uh, it's well, that was quick. That was the end of our that hour. We are going into our open line hour. If you've got a question about your house, home, castle, or cabin, it's one triple eight seven six seven four three four eight. That's one triple eight Rosie for you, Mr. John Jay. Thanks for your time this Saturday morning. Always a pleasure. Love being here. Don't miss the nine o'clock hour. This is Can't Miss Radio. Jennifer will be back up on her soapbox. This is Can't Miss Radio.